Hello and welcome back to You Versus Politics, the podcast debating and discussing the most recent developments in politics and headline news, hosted by Liam Walsh and Jodie Summers. In the same week where Chancellor Rishi Sunak faced backlash for posting with a cup of tea, Home Secretary Priti Patel faced backlash for breaking trust with the country's top-level security services. On this week's episode, we discuss the global spread of the coronavirus and we question the level of response across the globe and whether enough action is being taken by the UK. Then we will give an update on the Democrat nomination process in the US and whose campaigns are dragging behind. And finally, we talk about the future of the Conservative Party, discussing what direction the party is likely to take and how long their success may continue. First this week, we're going to be talking about the global panic over COVID-19, a virus which has quickly spread across the globe, reaching every continent but Antarctica. Coronaviruses are a large family of viruses which may cause illness in animals or humans through respiratory infections, including the common cold and more serious viruses such as SARS. The most recently discovered coronavirus caused the coronavirus disease called COVID-19. So far, the cases of this coronavirus have been confirmed in 28 countries, with the largest numbers of reported cases in China, South Korea and Italy. 80,000 people have been confirmed as infected so far, with 78,000 of those cases being confirmed in China, of which 3,000 have led to deaths. According to the World Health Organization, the virus is thought to have an incubation period between 14 to 24 days, the time before symptoms start to show, but people may still be infectious during this period. These reasons being why it is so hard to estimate the true spread of the disease. Therefore, there could be half a month's worth of people with the disease unknown to themselves while still spreading it further. Based on rough estimates, it's thought that of those infected, 81% develop mild symptoms, 14% develop severe symptoms and 5% become critically ill, while it's thought that just 1-2% of cases lead to death. In context, about 1 billion people catch flu every year, which leads to largely varying death tolls around half a million. The main alarm surrounding the outbreak was the rate of spread of the virus. For context, in China there were 309 reported cases by the 21st of January, and just over a month later there were 78,000 reported cases, 65,000 of which had been restricted to the Hubei province. For context, the SARS outbreak of 2002 infected just over 8,000 people. Analysts are suggesting the true scale of the outbreak could be 10 times larger than official figures. So what I think particularly is interesting about the coronavirus, which sounds weird, but is like mm. the government's response, the Chinese government's response yeah. to the virus, because obviously the original outbreak began in Wuhan in China. They think it's linked to the seafood market because coronavirus yeah. is like transmitted between animals and people. And originally, kind of when the first kind of outbreak happened and it kind of reached like global news, everyone was praising China for like, yeah. kind of, unlike the SARS outbreak, which has happened in the past where kind of China tried to cover it up. It was only to a while down the line that they actually kind of reached out for help. China was very quick in saying this has happened, blah, blah, blah. We, they referred to it as unusual pneumonia because they didn't know what it was yeah, at the time. it was a new disease. Yeah. But saying that, kind of, as you kind of, as you, as mm. it's kind of progressed, there's been a lot of stuff that's maybe said actually, maybe the government's handling of this hasn't been so open and progressive as yeah. we originally thought because there's a doctor in china um who's called like dr lee who he originally wrote an email to colleagues basically saying that all these kind of similar cases are keep happening he thinks there's a new virus about kind of warning them to kind of 
protect themselves and whatever. Yeah. And then a few days later, uh, the security like people came to his house and were basically saying like accusing him of spreading rumors, which is a crime in China. Yeah. And so he was forced to sign a doc or not forced. He signed a document basically saying he wouldn't do that anymore. And then Dr. Lee himself actually later died of Damn. coronavirus. Mm. And kind of he's become like yeah. a national like folk hero in China for people praising him for like speaking the truth. So kind of little cover ups like that as such or kind of Yeah. Stuff. I, mean, I think kind of on the surface value, as we kind of know from China's history and their interactions with the international community, I think the fact that kind of their first act was to go to the international health community, you know, the WHO and that and I think whatever we kind of think about the overall response that initial response itself is definitely kind of a mm. groundbreaking kind of mark in uh chinese kind of international relations and in that it was not that oh we have another virus like they did with sars where they were trying to keep it to themselves but the actual initial response wasn't just kind of okay we're going to deal with this internally it was yeah the initial response was to turn to the global community yeah which is good but well, not but, but, well, it's kind of not really linked to international relations, but some have also kind of criticised China's kind of the use of force that's been used mm. in some areas, like, because obviously they're telling people to wear face masks and blah, blah, blah. There's a case of, like, an elderly woman who was, like, pinned to the ground because she couldn't afford a face mask and a mm. guy who's chained to a pole. Well, I saw, I think, someone on the news yesterday was that there were, like, security guards or something or police officers who were catching people with, like, fishing nets basically put them over their heads and like drag them into cars and things to Jeez. stop them spreading yeah. the disease effectively of but course the government can we don't know if that's directly top down from the government or that's just local authorities yeah that's true either way you can use each other as a scapegoat i guess if that came under fire mm. but some people refer to this as china's chernobyl as mm. in because it's such a kind of link to such how the government's responding because a lot of people in china I've kind of been frustrated with the government because they think the scale that it's got to, they think the government should have done something sooner, that they should have been better prepared because there was apparently, even when China's kind of come out and to the international community, they knew about it before yeah. they did so. But obviously, with this, obviously, it's kind of hard to prepare for such a rapidly spreading disease. Yeah, because I think the question itself has to also kind of focus on how much can a government, not just the Chinese government, but any government, government do in response to a virus outbreak? You know, it's not something that can kind of be ratified with a political declaration. You know, it's, it's a biological thing. So it's kind of, you know, almost man versus nature in this kind mm. of essence in how can you contain a virus outbreak effectively yeah. in the modern world. But then perhaps kind of as, you know, we look to the future and apocalyptic scenarios and that is kind of always a massive virus outbreak is always kind of one to come up. Yeah. So it's like there should be perhaps high level um, enforcement and kind of planning yeah. done in essence. But then again, it's kind of, well, if every virus is unique and its own scale, you, you can't prepare yeah. for every event. So but it's people are saying, because after, you know, the protests in Hong Kong that's happened yeah. this year, that the, obviously the leader of Chi and kind of the Communist Party have kind of faced very turbulent or at least past year, and with that, obviously China's political system, which is more restrictive of, say, the individual freedoms and rights, yeah. and freedom of speech or whatever, than, say, in the Western world, I don't you like using that phrase, but you know what I mean, mm. um, 
depends on the strong economy but if kind of with this virus people because it happened around Chinese New Year people mm. were spending less because obviously no one was really not no one but they weren't really going out yeah. obviously Chinese markets have dropped a little bit so kind of that depends on the good economy so if people are frustrated with the lack of freedom of speech because a lot of stuff on social media was going about where despite kind of the firewall and everything so many people are frustrated with the government that anti-government messages have space yeah. and come out but so, I think that's kind of almost inevitable in a scenario yeah. like this is kind of there's always going to be mass panic and it's kind of well the ideal scenario is that kind of they identify the virus and then straight away they stop it spreading but yeah. as I say that kind of then becomes a I don't, biological yeah. question then it does a political and control question I don't think this will like really impact not impact China's political system or no. kind of it will once hopefully we'll just move on well not hopefully but we'll move on mm. by the end of the year but it's interesting because with it being in China where obviously we've talked about this past and before where it's kind of such a contentious and rocky mm. relationship with international relations in terms of kind of acknowledging China's weaknesses not even it's not even the weaknesses yeah. it's no one's mm. fault it's just happened but you can look like at it in a, both ways and how they've handled it. Because it's kind of a common theme for Chinese governments historically because they don't want to admit their flaws Yeah. kind of thing. They have to maintain an image. And I think whilst um, obviously the case numbers are relatively large, you know, we're talking tens of thousands, um, the fact that 65,000 of the 78,000 cases in China are all in one province, um, obviously while it is not a good thing that 65,000 people have the disease in one area, Yeah. Um, it is a good, I think, reflection on the government's response that they have managed to contain it largely to one province. Yeah. And obviously that is um, concentrated on Wuhan and how kind of most of the city, um, that's where the infection is based. But then you kind of have to think that Wuhan itself is a city of over 10 million people. And yet mm. that's where the centre of the outbreak is. And of those 10 million people, only 65,000 people have it. Um, so kind of percentages wise, you know, and then you think of the global population. If there's 85,000 people have a disease of 7.7 billion people on the earth, yeah, you know, I think there is always kind of a big reactionary thing because it is a scary thing to kind of think there's a new killer virus out there that you know could be getting any of us. And <laughs> when it gets you know across to Europe and that, and I think that's kind of the main thing that I find. I don't know if interesting is the right word, but um, of the diseases, kind of it's such like a perfect representation of the internet interconnectedness of the global community in this modern age and that one virus can develop in a fish market in one city in china yeah and then within a week it spread itself to the, the us world. and europe yeah. um and continues to do so and i think you know the fact that northern italy is kind of one of the top affected areas from a virus that originated in, in the middle Mahal. of china <laughs> that's quite Pretty, remarkable yeah there's now more cases outside of china than there is inside China, mm. I heard, or like more kind of infections, which is intense. <laughs> yeah. So now we'll think we'll kind of talk about more about what the UK has done um, in preparedness for or the disease. Not done. <laughs> um, because the main responsibility for decision making on action against the virus in the UK falls to the Home Office, um, and then with the NHS being responsible for public health communications. Um, 
And the reality is, I think it was this morning before recording the podcast, the total number of infected people in the UK rose to 15. Uh, previously, it was 13. Again, these aren't massive numbers, but then it's, you know, kind of causes mass Still panic and panic, hysteria yeah. that there's 15 people with the disease yeah. in the country. Eight schools or something have closed down over fear mm. of infection and spreading infection. Um, and while, so the actual response from the Home Office, um, there haven't been explicit travel restrictions at all that have been put in place. Um, but the main advice that is being given, and kind of advice is the key word, is that anyone recently returning from four specific locations, being Iran, Northern Italy, special care zones in South Korea, and Hubei province in China, should isolate themselves and contact 111, even if not showing symptoms. So they've identified these four areas as kind of being, if you've returned from them recently, that's where you're most likely to have picked up yeah. the disease. As a point, I kind of find it interesting that they've specified Northern Italy, care zones in South Korea, one province in China, but they've said the whole of Iran. <laughs> be kind of, be careful. Um, and I know there is kind of big outbreak in Iran as well, but it's kind of interesting how they can be more specific for other areas, yeah, but Iran's just a kind of a big sweeping statement. Um, and then the advice is then continue to suggest anyone recently returning from mainland China, Thailand, Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore, or Macau should also follow the instructions, but only if showing symptoms um so kind of on the whole this can be seen as light response but then the question is well is it adequate response for, for where only 15 people cases, yeah. have the virus you know how much can they do and how much do they yeah. need to do a lot i've seen a few people saying that they should have like health secretary or government ministers come out on radio and kind of say something or give a public statement which they haven't done as of yet people were criticizing that but again on the other hand is like the outbreak big enough in britain for it to require that response yeah and i suppose then if you kind of have health ministers and such coming on kind of public um radio and television and things then that kind of more plays towards the panic and the, yeah because it might create know, more fear if the health secretary you know comes on saying everyone needs to be careful about it then that's what yeah creates the panic so if they don't do that it can look like lack of response but it also avoids hysteria and overreaction yeah. um, so the actual link to the UK um, has been pinpointed to a man called Steve Walsh um, he's probably feeling a bit, a bit guilty <laughs> a bit down with himself oh, I feel bad for him. Um, but it is believed that he contracted the disease whilst at a business conference in Singapore and then um, on his return to the UK he stopped off at a French ski resort um, where he met 11 other Britons who he infected, all of which, um, oh God. quite sad for them, uh, two of which were GPs, um, and a handful of them then also came back to Britain whilst others kind of went on to other areas, again, showing the interconnectedness of, of this world, the global yeah. world. Um, but interestingly, um, Steve Walsh himself, he only went to get himself tested for it after warnings from Singaporean authorities that said the virus was present at the conference he was at. Mm. Um, so he was tested positive for it uh, 12 days after he came back, at which point he was still not, not showing really. any symptoms. Which is scary, because like you've said, there's like a incubation, incubation period, period yeah. for, is it, I think, 14 days, or yeah. like, it can be up to 24 days. So that's... You can't blame the guy, because obviously mm. he doesn't know. And the news kind of referred to him as super spreader which is a bit of an unfortunate term but i think that's kind of 
really where like the health authorities, you know, the WHO, etc. They kind of that's where their main focus and concern is is the fact that people can have this disease for half a month, and if not, not longer, and have no idea, and you are still infectious to other people during that period. In that there could be, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands more people with this disease currently that have no idea they have it. Yeah. Um. So that's why that they're kind scary. of being a high level. That's like the apocalyptic risk from it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you know, don't panic, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, just make sure to follow the advice being issued by the government for now. Um. There was also interestingly two Chinese nationals that tested positive for coronavirus in the UK before, um. Steve Walsh did. Um, they were visiting York at the time, and but apparently they kind of hadn't really come into contact with many other people, so the risk there was kind of seen as much lower okay. than it did with Steve Walsh. Because as I said, two of the people he met at the ski resort were GPs, um, one of which then oh, returned yeah. and did a shift at work, and I think met with like eleven patients. And I think that was in Brighton when they had the big cleaning operation yeah. and the surgery was shut down completely. Um, but luckily, the other GP only went in to do paperwork on the day that they returned. Oh. So again, it, but then it's kind of, you know, these people just even, I don't know, walking down the street or yeah, you know, going into a shop, then all these other people. How much does it take to infect? Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of the whole thing of the outbreak is the unknowns, I suppose. Yeah. We don't know too much about it. And it's kind of, you know, there was stuff for um, virus development. And they said the tests for it might not be able to begin until the end of the year, you know, which yeah. is kind of scary. It but kind then of you can't seems just like you need more of like an immediate response. Yeah. But just really like just throwing it back to China, just because I remember something, is that originally the Chinese government kind of stood by the statement that the disease couldn't be transmitted between humans, and it was only uh, between animals and humans. I so see. they kind of yeah, kept. Right. Hmm. I don't know whether they generally thought that or they hmm. were just kind of trying to yeah. stop like the spread of fear i don't know but obviously that just kind of shows how much level the level of unknown like yeah. about this disease is that even the chinese government who were handling it didn't kind of clock on to the fact that it's spreading between people and then obviously that caused even more of an outbreak of the virus yeah. because people didn't think they were infectious to others and it was only between animals but then it's kind of as we say as well you know how much of this is just hysteria and how much should we be concerned like as we said and it's kind of a figure that when i read it i couldn't really believe but one billion people get the flu every year which is you know yeah. kind of what like one in seven people um you know and then again kind of the numbers of deaths from that are kind of that, in the tens of thousands which compares to a scale of a billion like people a cure mm. for a flu sort of random mutates every year isn't it so, and we do get um vaccines but they're not yeah universally issued so I suppose in the kind of the same thing when there is you know one virus that is so well known to us and then wipes out x amount of global population every year you know how much panic is there really that it's just the unknown more than yeah the actual and I think you know we had a similar thing with the Ebola virus outbreak in West Africa a few years ago and that everyone started suddenly panicking that we're all going to get the Ebola virus yeah you know but then again I suppose the contrast to that is that Chinese populations would be a lot more globally connected, um, whereas in West Africa there wouldn't be so much in out migration, mm. uh, especially from tourism, I suppose. Because especially I think, it was Chinese New Year as well, so people yeah. were flying into the country, out yeah. the country. Because I think we only had one uh, 
as only the case in the UK whilst that kind of panic was going on. But, you know, we've already had 15 coronavirus mm-hmm. um, outbreaks. But then, as I said, there wouldn't be as many people, say, going to, you know, a West African country for a business conference than there would be to going to Singapore and other places like that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's kind of definitely an interesting perspective there just on global connectedness, as I say, of the yeah. global community and, you know, where people interact and how quickly these things can yeah. spread. That's just something very interesting, I find. <laughs> Maybe a downside to interconnected not downside but mm. it's just a risk a risk of a it. risk yeah it. not downside Wrong just word. be careful and wash your hands dr liam's advice yeah. stay indoors everyone. <laughs> before we move on to the next topic make sure to follow our podcast you can keep up to date on instagram at you versus politics or on twitter with the handle you versus politic without the s Now we're going to be talking about the U.S. Democratic nomination process. With the presidential election taking place in November 2020, the Democratic Party are currently in the nomination process to find out who will take on Donald Trump. A few weeks ago, we discussed the Iowa caucus and the Democratic primaries, and over the past week, there have been significant developments in the race. The Nevada caucus, held on the 22nd of November, is likely to indicate the trajectory of the Democratic Party, with Bernie Sanders winning a huge victory. So Nevada, which is 30% Latino, 10% black and has a growing Asian American population, is a much more diverse state than previous caucus like Iowa, which is 90% white, and it's kind of more fitting to a democratic demographic. So arguably suggests that Bernie is a clear frontrunner to take on Trump because he had such a great result. So Joe Biden came in second, an improvement from Iowa, and Pete Buttigieg placed third with Elizabeth Warren just behind. Some argue that as many people in Nevada voted before the televised debate where Elizabeth Warren had a strong performance, that Warren would have performed better in the caucus if there had been less early voting, with 75,000 people casting their vote before Saturday. This is supported by the fact that in three days following the debate, 250,000 people donated to Warren's campaign, culminating in a boost of $9 million. This then increased to $14 million, doubling the amount her campaign set out as a goal to raise over the caucus. After disappointing results for Biden in the first two state contests of Iowa and New Hampshire, this was a significant bounce back. So he kind of said to the, the press is ready to declare people dead quickly. We're alive. We're coming back. We're going to win South Carolina, then Super Tuesday. So Amy Klobuchar, after coming third in New Hampshire, faced a really disappointing result and basically was at the bottom. Mike Bloomberg was not on the ballot due to his late entry into the race, though his performance in the debate was quite weak and his history in his treatment of women and funding of white-wing Republicans is bound to hurt his campaign. So yeah, it seems kind of, as we go forward with the caucuses and the primaries, um, that Bernie Sanders really is emerging as the clear favourite. As with kind of the other primaries that have been going on, there's always kind of been different people coming in second and third. You know, sometimes Pete Buttigieg does better, sometimes Joe Biden does better, but consistently Bernie Sanders has stayed at the top. Yeah, I think it's interesting because obviously when if you go back to 2016, when it was between Bernie and Hillary, a lot of people were angry that Bernie didn't kind of be the official nominee yeah. and then take on Trump because there are a lot of voters who then swayed from Bernie to Donald Trump, which you think is a complete like oxymoron, but yeah. Here we are, because I think with American politics, it's still so much based on the person rather than... Oh, yeah, it's completely personality-based. Yeah. 
And I think that's kind of where it becomes interesting because it's not a party trying to get into power as much. It is the person, the president. That's what it's all about. You know, it's not like a general election. It is a presidential Yeah, it's like, say, it sounds really dumb, but like, on sign, we'll have Bernie. Whereas in here, we would never have Theresa May. It would be conservatives Mm. or... She did try that, didn't she? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We saw what happened there. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's interesting with Bernie Sanders because I think... What a lot of people kind of found surprising about Donald Trump is that kind of he was elected on on an extreme, um, which is quite rare for American politics. You know, they normally bounce around kind of what you would consider a, a moderate. But then you kind of have to be open to the possibility that if Donald Trump can become president, Bernie Anyone, Sanders yeah. can become president. You know, if we can have one extreme, surely the other will also break through as well. Because what's interesting is that although they are politically different they are appealing to the same people they're both appealing to working class people kind of where past jobs have gone with industry and that and that is where a lot of their focus is but then in contrast to that where donald trump doesn't appeal as much to middle class voters um bernie sanders does kind of have the vote of your young champagne socialist types yeah who kind of want to be on the working class ticket when they're not really actually in that yeah but That's the thing, I think with some voters who've kind of then moved to the Republican and moved to Trump, I don't think you'll be able to get them back. Mm. But I do think Bernie, obviously he shows that he can, he's much more of a kind of a president for all as such, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where kind of other voters like Amy Klobuchar, where she kind of did all right, all good in New Hampshire, she came third. Yeah. Here she barely got any votes. And in a state much more diverse, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have kind of come out on top. And that's what kind of so much of American politics is about identities and demographics in that, you know, when presidents and campaigns are looking at who's going to vote, they take it state by state and kind of see, you know, oh, how big's the Hispanic population yeah. and that. Because America is kind of obsessed with race and always has been. And this kind of translates directly into their politics. And I that. think it's because it has such a bad history but I with... think at times kind of they don't know how to handle it because it becomes kind of how do we not how do we win people's votes but how do we win the black vote how do we win the hispanic vote why can't we just you know why isn't there a kind of more broad general approach of but it's so much about okay how do we appeal to this class how do we appear to that group you yeah know, it's so much it's more, more as well kind strategic of... if america even obviously it's much more progressive now but like certain populations or kind of Hispanic or black population are kind of facing, especially under the Trump's presidency, to say much more oppression and much more thing. It does kind of sometimes maybe you do have to group people together, as bad as that sounds, because if a certain group are being treated or having to face certain obstacles that other people don't, you yeah. can understand why people kind of grouped all together but, mm. say, but then, I agree with you like you shouldn't say that but then you know in the democratic race we have a panel of just white people now yeah that's all that's left and kind of white millionaires that's all they will ask yeah. <laughs> especially kind of a that's thing. What, what I find crazy as well the, the money that goes oh, yeah. like American politics like you can't you can't do it if you don't have money no like, like if like GoFundMe was a thing, multi-millionaire like, yeah know. and I think you know pretty much all of them are Elizabeth Warren will be as well you know and kind of, it, in a way, it's not that they're trying to hide that fact. Is that kind of 
if you're rich enough, you can become president. And I think yeah. that's what Mike Bloomberg kind of sees him himself. He has the money really? for it, so he deserves it. I think that's yeah. kind of where his mindset tails into. It's because where, at least in this country, or where people should be following the rules, <laughs> is that we have spending limits. We yeah. have kind of limits on posts and blah blah blah. <laughs> blah. Mm. America doesn't really have that. As in, yeah. think of how long all this kind of race and as in like the race and how everything pans out it's such a long-winded process you know? i guess because america is such a big country like we yeah we don't really face that as such because I, I think it might have been as even as kind of early as late 2018 when people like elizabeth warren were saying yeah. they were going to run you know kind of only two years into donald trump's Trump presidency and they're already and i guess you know, then they have by-elections and all that stuff even though that's mm. not to do with someone getting to run against trump it's kind of building up your yeah, momentum because the democrats yeah. did do well there so maybe mm. what do you think do you think that trump will be i think ousted? i think he'll probably get re-elected i think because i think for a american president you know because of the two-term system if you get in once you know it takes something quite monumental for something to happen again and in a normal circumstance an impeachment would be a monumental thing yeah um but there were statistics coming out that 20 percent of americans didn't even pay any attention to it which compared to bill clinton's impeachment trial where only two percent of americans paid no interest in it yeah um and i think in reality trump supporters didn't care yeah. about it it yeah. was kind of played off as the democrats kind of just being annoying and that worked well mm. for them in that that's what his voters saw kind it of as. wasting congress's time yeah. or whatever and i'm sure there's no doubt that there must be a few people in america that kind of saw what he was being accused of and kind of you know that would have dissuaded their opinion of him um and even though it's a very strange and rigged legal system um he was acquitted in the end so yeah trump did no wrong mm. <laughs> that's a headline isn't yeah it? <laughs> <laughs> i guess but also you think about the trump president the amount of stuff that's happened like the shutdown of yeah the white house mm. essentially you know what i mean the government there's been obviously the whole kind of refugee kind of migration policy kind of how degrading that has been yeah, the kind the of treatment for some people that, yeah. but obviously some people just don't care mm. if it doesn't affect but them think, they don't know, care and there was everything that's going on at the border with child separation and that but yeah we have to remember i think this is what his 2016 voters were expecting you know yeah it's not like they voted for something and now he's doing these complete horrible things you know this is what he campaigned on and what got him elected as president mm. you know so i think whilst these are often criticisms these are criticisms of the people that would be critical of him anyway, anyway yeah um you know he hasn't done so much to disrupt the people that would be voting him and that is where his campaign would be undermined the most but you know and the republicans themselves obviously aren't going to turn their backs on a republican mm. president you know if he's done it once why can't he do it, do it again don't you think well, it's kind of bad though because how like in like two factors obviously there's like kind of the populist element where he can in some people's eyes he can do no wrong because mm. he's president like i think we take a very different approach is in like where i think anyone even if you vote conservative or labor or whatever in this country if the prime minister does something say if boris johnson well i don't even know but say if the prime minister did something or did what trump did i don't we wouldn't have I don't think mm. we would have been so forgiving as such. But in America, I think there's much more of a kind of presidential 
side and like what's the word Immun- immunity mm. as in like he can do no wrong and with the republicans it's kind of so tribal that they're not willing to because i guess obviously for them it doesn't make sense to go against trump no but then if you think for your country's sake maybe as such yeah because i think there's an interesting Democrat. distinction where in the uk i'd say that politics is more fluid um in that i think we have a lot more um swing voters and people, you know, are quite keen to stay up to date with politics in terms of switching parties. But in America, because it is Democrat or Republican, it's kind of like you pick your tribe and you stick to it, um, you know, and the other is the evil. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, whilst obviously that's true because there are a lot of hardcore conservatives and hardcore Labour supporters in the country, I think we have a lot more people kind of washing around the middle. I mean, as the last general election showed, people are willing to sway if they yeah. feel that. But I think on the campaign as a whole, as we say, Bernie Sanders is kind of emerging. He's emerging as the um, Democratic favourite. Um, but again, we've only had um, three primaries so far. Yeah. We've had Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. There so are after, forty-seven yeah, more to go. Super Tuesday should be a good indication. Yeah, so I find it interesting because there's people already writing off um, Pete Buttigieg completely. When after these three primaries, he's in a firm second position and there are 47 more states to go but people are kind of saying yeah well his momentum's going to wear off whatever but then if you make the contrast to say uh, 2008 Obama you know he started the race as kind of a nobody put himself yeah. into the second position hovering there firmly and then went on to win it yeah. so I think it's strange it's early that, to call that you can just write him off and I think a lot of that's because he's inexperienced compared to the others you know there's a lot of um people saying oh he should stand down and amy klobuchar should stand down um in preference for elizabeth warren which i find bizarre in that pete Buttigieg and amy klobuchar are moderate candidates and elizabeth warren is a left-wing candidate yeah so it's kind of well actually wouldn't their supporters maybe actually be more tempted to go for joe biden yeah. say you know or even mike bloomberg <laughs> <laughs> you know. and that's the other interesting thing because a lot of um pollsters and that you know there seems to be predicting a two-man showdown at the end between Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, Mm. um, which is quite strange to me. But then I think a lot of the centrist and left-wing American press are kind of going in on Mike Bloomberg a lot negatively in that they don't like the idea of him buying his campaign. But that is what the presidential campaign is anyway. Yeah. You know, if you have more money, you have more influence. And I guess maybe they're giving him so much coverage... That just mm. gives him more popularity and yeah. people know him more. I should say as well, I find it quite entertaining. Uh, there is also another woman called uh, Tulsi Gabbard <laughs> in the race. She's kind of the other one left over. And in the Nevada caucus, um, despite actually running, she received fewer votes than candidates that had dropped out of the race. <laughs> um, How? And she's still going. She's, she's not oh, go going on. anywhere. But, Determined. Um, I think that's just a little funny, funny little way. anecdote <laughs> in that you can come behind people that are not even in the race somehow. <laughs> so she, oh. But she's hanging in there apparently. I so, admire that level of determination. You know, maybe she's building up for something in the future. As we say, she's only young. I think she's 38. Oh, yeah, she's got so, time. You know, she's got more to do. If you look at, you know, Bernie Sanders mm. and Donald Trump in their late 70s. In it, like... There's more to come from them. <laughs> 
Before we go on to our final topic of the day, talking about the future of the Conservative Party, if you've liked what you've heard so far, make sure to listen to our podcast and follow us on social media. You can find us uh, on Instagram at Youth vs Politics or on Twitter at Youth vs Politics without the S. Uh, and we've been doing some polls recently to decide what we should be talking about in future episodes and that's why the coronavirus was featured this week so if you want to have a say on what we should talk about make sure to head over to our socials so we're going to head back to talking about uk politics now so in the general election the tories focused their campaign on two key issues to get brexit done and to prevent corbyn from becoming prime minister now both issues have been met and will be completely so by april when the new labour leader is decided so looking to the future, what will the new key issues for the Conservatives be? Will they ensure Brexit gets done properly, or will they move into a default no-deal position where they portray the EU as the stubborn enemy and turn to America? Will they focus on securing the newfound Northern seats with changes to the Lords, such as moving to, to York? But is this nothing more than a necessity, dressed up as a political goodwill, as the revamp of the Palace of Westminster is scheduled anyway? If Starmer or Lisa Nandy secures the Labour leadership, the Conservatives are going to have to rethink their entire strategy against Labour as an overhaul of the Labour Party can be expected under these two leaders. So looking over kind of to the next five years of the Conservative government, yes. um, now it's kind of we've returned to a position in UK politics that we haven't seen for quite a long time in that where we have a stable majority government. We're um, not debating over whether Brexit's going to happen. Yeah, and we have kind of loyalist MPs within every party, you know, the rebellious ones are being ousted. Um, you know, we're kind of returning to, you know, kind of even the Tony Blair era that was that long ago to have a stable majority government mm. in that now Boris Johnson with his 80 seat majority can propose policy in the Commons and have it pass successfully without much stress or woe. Yeah. Um, so this kind of, you know, I think we're not kind of used to being in this mindset where now in Parliament, it's not so much a competition between the parties, it is the Conservative yeah. rule for the foreseeable future. So it's more the question of what are they going to do and what are they going to change in those five years? Because even though we've had a Tory government since 2010, kind of since 2016, or even a bit before that, mm. we've kind of the 2015 election, Brexit's just been everywhere. And even though obviously this year it's obviously going to be everywhere because this is the year we're in the transition period and we're going to... Yeah negotiating but obviously negotiations haven't started just yet even though they will very soon this kind of period of the year we can't lie i think everyone feels a bit relieved even if you're a yeah. remainer or lever that the it kind of, of brexit debate isn't yeah. at the forefront of everything it takes a level of stretch out of politics as well yeah in that kind of there is certainty now which is what the conservatives kind of pledged yeah. their election campaign on but then obviously with that certainty is the uncertainty about mm. what what even does Brexit mean? There's so many different forms, variations. I think we've said it many times, but not even just like hard Brexit, soft Brexit, but what does it mean for people from the EU living here? What does it mean to people who want to work in the EU? What does it mean mm. for trade? What does it mean for... Obviously, we've had the new immigration policy. We talked about yeah. that last week. Because interestingly, kind of on that, um, once the Brexit deal was going through Parliament, there was amendments made to ensure that the rights of EU citizens living in the UK weren't affected by the Brexit process. Um, but the Conservative Party has recently uh, repelled, um, revoked that position. So now that EU citizens' rights in the UK are now in jeopardy, and they might not get special treatment and have to go through the same process as everyone else, even though they are legally 
yeah. living here. I was going to say, um, I think the whole, the whole thing was that immigrants from outside the EU and immigrants with the EU are going to be treated equally from now on and blah, blah, mm. blah. But, <laughs> but kind of whether that's going to happen, who knows? Throws up the question of obviously, because the direction of the next five years, the first few years, you know, if not the full five years, you know, first it's going to centre on our relationship with the European Union once the transition period is completed. What do we look like outside of the EU? And then the focus will turn on our relationships with non-EU member states. So kind of, you know, will we start drawing up new trade deals with China, with the US, South with Korea. Brazil? You know, there's kind of, you know, Australia. We've been promised a great trade deal with Australia by our Prime Minister, not the Australian. Um, and, you know, Australia's really close, so it won't matter anyway. It's yeah. across the sea there. But I think that was kind of, you know, where the trajectory moving forward is that Will the Conservatives um, put themselves out there as an international-looking government and in that kind of we're being forced to turn to the international community now? Or will it kind of become quite a nationalist government in that now that Britain is free and sovereign once again, that mm. we are going to be able to stand on our own two legs and not have to rely on the international community as much? I can feel that um, they might do the latter, um, do the prior kind of, you know, be internationalist, but then put it in the guise of being yeah. independent, free Britain. That's the thing. We've never... I think one of the things that this country, we've kind of struggled to understand... Not understand, but, like, just remind ourselves is that we've always had to rely on other countries. There's always yeah. this talk about, are oh, we won two world wars, blah, blah, blah. We did that with other countries' yeah. help. It wasn't Britain versus was the world. That wasn't the world yeah. war. <laughs> Before, like... um obviously we had commonwealth we had the empire we had to have an oh a whole empire to create the wealth and to create the country yeah. today which obviously had devastating consequences for kind of countries that were then colonized but we, britain on its own would never have been able to yeah, achieve so its we can't international we can't just turn away from the world no we're such a small little country as well and i'm not saying this in like a really anti-britain no. or whatever or other way i'm just, just kind of acknowledging the truth actually yes um I think one of the kind of big things for the Conservatives is are they going to be able to fulfil their campaign promises with such a big majority? Yeah. Are they actually going to be able to keep that majority in the next general election? Because what have kind of surfaced this week about the NHS, obviously Boris kind of campaigned on the line that the NHS is not for sale, mm. kind of ignoring the kind of worries about a trade deal with America that could put the NHS on the table, in Trump's words. Yeah. And then this week... The United Health Group, which is a US healthcare firm, was handed seven million pounds by the government to help the NHS highlight their most expensive patients, dividing mm -hmm. them into different categories like low, medium, high risk, and kind of that kind of US involvement and interference kind of does raise fears about the privatisation of the NHS. Obviously, that could not be the case, but yeah, could just be a research project if that's the way to phrase it. Yeah, but obviously, does kind of raise fears because obviously i think everyone can agree that no one wants the nhs to be privatized <laughs> and with brexit and getting brexit done and kind of promises made to different groups of people farmers fishers manufacturers mm. businesses will we be able to deliver a brexit that will kind of benefit british people which yeah statistically then, hasn't always shown the case 
Yeah. But a lot of people are like short term damage for long term gain in the end. But then I think a lot of um, this kind of looking to the next five years, as it were, you know, and I think it's inevitably to be defined by post Brexit Britain. Um, but we have to remember that that's going to be like you know, there the are a lot of national issues that are still ongoing. You know, we've talked about HS2. Um, how the Conservatives are going to maintain connections to the Northern voters that they won over in the last election. You know, mm. are they, is there suddenly going to going to be a wave of Northern investment as a thank you? You yeah. know, is HS two even going to happen? Because I know he's giving mm. it the go ahead, but the money keeps rising up you know, and up. Or will they just kind of? Or will it get to Birmingham thank and, you then, and then you know? Yeah. Say actually, you know, we'll we'll take your votes and we'll thank you for giving us a majority, but you know. Ooh, we don't actually <laughs> care about you moving forward anyway. And the other kind of um, interesting focus for the Conservative Party, as I said, will be their opposition to the Labour yes. Party um, moving forward because it kind of there were polls put out this week that had Keir Starmer, um, I think, towards 52% of the vote for the Labour leadership um, election. So it kind of is almost coming, becoming inevitable that Keir Starmer oh is going to become the new leader of the Labour Party now that the ballot is open as well. Yeah, it was open Monday. Um, so, you know, kind of moving forward, it'll become a question of they're no longer campaigning against Corbyn's Labour, they're going to be campaigning against Keir Starmer's Labour. Um, so that'll kind of take a while for obviously Keir Starmer to adjust and change the Labour Party, for then for the Conservative Party to adjust to that. Yeah. And looking forward, we can expect really um, as a sweeping statement that it's going to be kind of a more Blairite kind of Labour Party in the sense that it would be more moderate and centrist. I think in comparison to Jeremy Corbyn's like party as such, it's gonna obviously gonna move a bit more to the centre in that stage. Obviously not new Labour, but obviously newer Labour. Yeah. <laughs> kind of um move to the centre. Like that could either go two ways. I think people are either gonna moderate people maybe people who don't aren't like tribally conservative maybe mm. some Lib Dem voters or whatever can be pulled into Labour but will they be enough to kind of bring Labour back up will Labour lose some of its yeah. core voters or people who've kind of supported Jeremy Corbyn obviously a lot of young people sort of supported Jeremy Corbyn but will they kind of lose hope in that if less of the I don't like the word extremists I don't think they actually are extremists but <laughs> left wing mm. policies um are dropped yeah so so we kind of but then obviously then on the flip side of that labor's future performance relies heavily on kind of what the conservatives are going to do wrong yeah. um in their five years because you know we could be entering a new golden age of britain and there'll be nothing wrong and then mm. labor won't have anything to criticize them on but i'm sure <laughs> labor will never get into power again <laughs> but it'll be interesting yeah moving forward how this conservative party shifts itself yeah. going forward will it kind of drag yeah. itself back towards the center post-election as kind of the conservatives have done in the past where they kind of campaign on issues more to the right and then kind of actually be in government they're not actually as extreme as kind of the fear-mongering and such might suggest during election processes i mean um, austerity kind of maybe mm -hmm. kind of counters that but austerity can be done by left-wing governments as well no yeah but did they do it no yeah. <laughs> But we'll have to... <laughs> Just got a little taste of our political opinions. Mm. <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap it up there. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. You can stay up to date on Instagram at you versus politics, 
or on Twitter at you versus politic without the S. Um, yes, and make sure to follow us and keep up to date with us. Um, but until next week, thank you for listening and goodbye.